Fine Pairs headquarters in New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair podcast. Uh, you know, Zach, it's been like a, a rough few weeks of like <laughs> pretty brutal cold. Um, I'm pretty ready. I mean, I know it's February now, but like I'm pretty ready for spring already. I, you know, I, I think people are going to kill me, but I don't really care that much about Valentine's Day coming up. Oh, man, don't tell Naomi. Also, that's what we should have been talking about on this podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> Valentine's Day, man, there's nothing fun to say about Valentine's Day, dude. It is, it is like setting aside all the like, you know, bullshit, like buy this, buy that, like buy another diamond thing for someone who doesn't need it. Like, it's just that, like from a drinks perspective, which is, I guess, what we should come at it from. Like, there's nothing like, what do you get to drink on Valentine's Day? Okay, champagne, sure, but like New Year's Eve is more fun to talk about it anyhow. Plus, like, this year it's a Thursday. Like, Valentine's Day can be a got any damn night of the week and it's like no one really wants to go get you know have too much to drink or you get like some gross pink cocktail somewhere and it's like oh we put like you know we ground up like you know sweethearts and put it in your cocktail which is horrifying to me like it's the it's a terrible it's like i'd rather frankly and i don't think we're going to do this if i have my way i'd rather talk about like green beer on saint patrick's day than than talk about drinking on valentine's day I mean, come on, but like, okay, fine. Let's make do a little, at least a little mini Valentine's Day. Like, we got you, boo. And I think that would be that. Just like, don't get. First of all, remember our restaurant podcast. Which, uh, thank you so much for the feedback for those that wrote in about how awesome you thought that podcast was. We tried to speak truth to power. We appreciate that you also felt that uh, that issue is not talked about enough. Uh, props to Zach for that idea. Um, but first, remember if you're going out for Valentine's Day that this is one of the times of the year that the restaurant makes a lot of their money. Uh, it's been hard for them in these last few weeks. So please don't be upset about the price fix menu. That being said, do not overthink the wine list. Be very clear with your uh, server or the sommelier, if the restaurant has one, about what you want to spend and the kind of flavors you're into. Please, please, please don't try to pull the whole like, oh, I got this. I'm just going to like impress my date and <laughs> then just fly blind because what's going to happen is you're going to wind up buying a bottle of wine that's more than you can afford that you're going to then freak out about because even if you enjoy it, you're going to, you know, feel like you didn't budget for it. Don't do that. Just ask for help. You're going to get a great bottle of wine. You're going to do great. I promise. It's going to be a great night out and everything's going to be good because Adam, you want my, you want my Valentine's Day hack? This is my What's that? Hack. Yeah, go. Okay. So, so this you're is if you're staying in. I mean, that's mine. No, 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 no. This is going out. This is this is all the things. This is the show, the show, the song and dance, everything. But here's your, here's the thing, right? Look at the wine list beforehand, for God's sake. Like most restaurants put their wine list online. Worst case scenario, if you want to be, you know, you want to be ambitious on this, you can go in there and ask to get a copy of it. Like, do your homework. Be prepared. If you want to be the person who impresses someone, you know, man, the 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 preparation is key. And if you're prepared and you walk in there and you sit down, doesn't matter, male, female, who you're dating, whatever. If you know what you if you if you have a bottle picked out and you're like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to try this or I heard really good things about this wine. Let's get this. You are going to save yourself so much trouble. Exactly. And there you can you can shop ahead. You can price yourself. You're not stuck being like. Oh shit! Like, what are we gonna drink? Zach, see, I wish this was a hack that worked. I really wish that it was. But do you know how many times I've looked at the wine list online, and I go <laughs> into the restaurant, and they tell me that they haven't updated that list that was online in five years because it was like, oh yeah, we made the rest, we made the website when the when the 
when Chef opened the place or made the restaurant when so-and-so opened. And we haven't actually put the current wine list online in the last six months. And they're like, we, we don't have that wine anymore. Uh, and then I honestly true. feel like that creates more paralysis than just asking for help. Because they're like, oh, 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 I don't – shit. Like yeah. that happens all the time. And then I, and I don't ever know what to do in those situations. And I work in wine and a lot of people, you know, write in for the, my ask Adam column tell me they don't know what to do either, which is like, you know, am I then supposed to ask the server or some for like, you know, a wine that tastes similar? Cause then they'll say to me, Oh, but you know, that's really interesting that, was your, that you were really into that, you know, Pinot Noir from Oregon. I mean, we know that one was only $50 a bottle, but we have a really great one for 90. Are you then supposed to say, well, are you going to give that one to me for 50? Cause that's what I was looking for. Like, what do you do? It's like, yeah. Uh. Okay. Okay. Criticism heard. I spend a lot of time every week making sure our wine list online is up to date, I but I get that not everyone a does good that. Restaurant. <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, I guess if you go out to, you know, I guess you could judge something about the caliber of the restaurant or at least their attentiveness to their, uh, online presence by their, um, by the uh, by, how up to date they keep that. I think the fun one would be if you're like, oh, I saw you posted that picture of that wine on Instagram. And they're like, yeah, we're out of it. That would be a, that would be a fun one. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's hard, man, because like I think some restaurants too. Just you know, I don't mean to say good versus bad. If you don't update your online list, like please don't come at me. I I think it's a staffing issue too, right? Like, are, sure. are you going to worry about the quality of the food and the fact that like you're passing health inspection? Or are you going to worry about like updating the menu and the wine list? Like, there's just I mean, there's some like amazing restaurants out there that I'll look at the menu quite often because my wife's a vegetarian. So like I have to always do the reconnaissance first. She's like, she's like, well, did you look to make sure there's vegetarian options? I'm like, yes, I did. And sometimes they're like, oh yeah, sorry. Like that, that menu we haven't updated in a year, like that vegetarian option is no longer available. Um, and, and I get it. It's frustrating, but they had other shit to worry about. Right. And, and these, and sometimes these are very good restaurants. So I think it's a good point. It's just one that obviously like, you never know. But that's not what we're talking about today, is it? No, no. It's not Valentine's Day, actually. No, uh, happy Valentine's Day, fake Naomi. Yes, and Caitlin, you too. Um, I don't know what we're doing for Valentine's Day. We still haven't figured it out. Probably Adam's hack of dinner at home because also with a seven-month-old, yeah, not, not, not a great holiday. <laughs> but uh, I guess no, eight-month-old. We're here to I've talk about oh, – I know, dude. Life's rough. So we're going to talk about uh, another subject, though, which is you know I think we, we've chatted about a bunch – offline and it's time to bring it into the mainstream and that is like is sherry ever gonna happen no um what do you think well no you said no uh, wait 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 okay, wait, wait. <laughs> for the Podcast sake of having this, yeah. listening everybody we're out we'll have, have, please tip cue yourself the out, cue the outro music um no uh okay so so here's the thing about sherry right and, and we'll, we have a couple of dimensions to this to talk about but but one of my things with sherry is like I like Sherry. You know, uh, on a previous podcast, Tim kind of got got uh, Kim, Tim McCurdy got mad at me for for talking bad about Sherry. And I'd like to point out that I genuinely enjoy Sherry in, in a variety of styles. I think it's interesting. I think it's tasty. But I'm also a lunatic. Like I like weird things, and I'm in the wine industry. And like I don't expect, for the most part, that my tastes are going to align with the average person. And I think the problem that you and I have both encountered is not that whether we or we do or do not like Sherry. Because Sherry is out there for us if we do, and we can we know how to find it. The problem is this idea that like, oh man, like the greatest thing. It's it's just on the, you know, it's on the cusp. And and, and Sherry is like, you know, the the even less uh, appreciated or less liked version of this like Riesling, right? Sommeliers and wine professionals have been trying to make Riesling a thing forever, you know. And the reality at some point that an industry has to come across is like there's just not an audience for this, like, or there's not much of one, right? And it sucks in some ways because the reality is like you're already seeing in Sherry, like, 
producers switching over to making more just still wine because the audience for for sherry in its various forms and uh is just not there but like what are we supposed to do like are, are we supposed to pretend that people like this just to keep these bodegas in business like i guess maybe but i, I don't know if that's my responsibility really like my responsibility i think is first and foremost to my guests and if they don't want to drink sherry and they don't for the most part then am i supposed to keep pushing it on them i don't know what do you think adam i mean look i think i think sherry is just really tough man <laughs> like, I really don't know what to think, to be honest with you. I, Sherry for me has been this thing that people have tried to tell me was going to be the next great trend in wine since I was getting interested in wine. And while I like Sherry, it's never been that thing that's been the next great thing in wine, right? Like, I don't know if I'm addressing any of the points you just made because <laughs> all, yeah. you know, all I can think of is just like it confounds me that it's still the one thing we think is going to happen. And it's – you know, there's there's other publications that I can think of that like have written multiple articles about how Sherry's the next big thing. You know, the, the, and, and I think what's interesting too is that we think Sherry was going to be the next big thing because we all thought that it wasn't just going to be in wine, right? In the world of wine where we would all have a nice Sherry in the meal, but like mixology was going to adopt it. We're going to start making all these really cool Sherry cocktails. And like, it was going to have this multi-use and, you know, we all, we all were going to get ready and it just hasn't really popped off that way. And, you know, I think the reason for that is a lot of what we've chatted about, right? Like, Sherry is a very hard beverage to get into and to understand, and it has a stigma of the wine my grandma drank. I mean, that's definitely true. I think there's two other big issues for Sherry, right? So if we're talking, I mean, Sherry, as we have alluded to before, there's a lot of different kinds of Sherry, a lot of different styles. And I'm not, this isn't going to be a Sherry education podcast. So uh, if you have questions, there's plenty of information on VinePair and other sites if you want to know the details of Sherry. But what I will say is like the the kind of principal styles, if you have your sort of fino Sherry, you're dealing with a, a Sherry that is, there's a, there's no fruitiness to it at all. It's all savory. It's fortified, so it's relatively high in alcohol. It's kind of salty and briny, and it's really, really hard to drink on its own. Now, it makes for a great pairing, but as you and I have talked about before, Adam, most American wine drinkers don't drink wine with food, at least only with food. And if you sit down and your first experience with sherry is not with the right pairing, you're not in the sherry triangle like we recommended a couple of episodes ago, then you're not going to really get why anyone cares about sherry. And if it's a cocktail ingredient, great. But like, who cares really? Like, then you're just, to me, the sherry as cocktail based thing is like a bunch of people bought a bunch of sherry and they're like, shit, what am I going to do with it? And it's like, well, if I mix it in a cocktail, people will drink it because it's going to taste like a bunch of other things. It's not going to just taste like sherry. And the other style of sherry that you see besides the sort of sweeter dessert side are oxidized sherries. And man, if there's things, if there's anything that people generally like less than the Fino style, it's the oxidative styles of sherry, which are even harder to appreciate because they taste even less like wine. They they taste like, you know, wine that's been left out for a week, except like good, I guess. And I like these things. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying we are dealing with in, what is now inherently a niche product. And I really wish that people would 
understand and respect that. But I still get reps all the time who are like, oh, we have this amazing Sherry portfolio. And I'm like, wonderful. I will buy it from you when it's on super duper closeout because no one wants it. Yeah. I mean, so basically what you're saying is like you only want to buy Sherry when it's super cheap. It's already super cheap, but I just can't sell it. <laughs> like that's the thing, right? Like I will drink it myself. But look, Adam, you you told you told the story a few weeks ago about serving at a dinner party and everyone being like, "What the fuck is this?" And like I assume that when you do that, right? When you when you invite people over, they know what. I mean, you're the CEO of VinePair. They know what they're getting into. So these probably aren't totally just people who are like, "I only drink," you know. Cabernet or whatever, maybe they are. In which case, maybe the fault is yours. Yeah. But the point is, like, even if people who are open to wine experiences and ha- are served sherry, presumably in a reasonable context, like with food, still are like not into it. That's not our fault, right? That's just sherry is a product with a very niche market, and I wish people would just be okay with that. Like, maybe it sucks for the producers, right? Like, then- there's a lot of land devoted to sherry that's now going to be devoted to something else. But like that shit happens. Well, why? Okay, so yes, you. But then why why do some people think it's going to happen? Like that, that's what I guess I'm trying to understand. I think that's a better point of this conversation than us trying to continue to say why we think it's niche. Because I, I think it's niche. You think it's niche. It is niche, right? Why do you we think have, we so, have proven it so? Right. Why do you think so many people in the industry are so convinced it's going to be the next big thing? Okay, so I got two reasons for you. Go. The first reason is Sherry. If you are of a particular bent is like really interesting. And I think there's a lot of sommeliers, wine buyers and writers who confuse interesting to them with interesting to literally anyone else. Like the process of making sherry is really interesting. It has a fascinating history. It was once an incredibly important uh, wine and beverage. And people are like, oh, I have discovered this great, you know, this, this fascinating beverage. Let me convince my audience, whether they're readers, whether they're customers, et cetera, that this is the thing they should be drinking. But like, we've talked about this before on this podcast, and it's an issue that I think this industry faces a lot, which is if you are- Oh, wait, we're, writer, na- we're not navel gazers? I, well, I mean, a lot of us are. And you, you and I are probably guilty of this to some extent, I too. Um, but But the reality is like, if it's not, you can be fascinated by it. That's wonderful. But you're you're- your guests, your readers, whoever are not going to be for the most part, right? Because we're always seeking out new interesting things. And and I'm sure that in our travels, in, your, in our experiences professionally, we've tried lots of things. We're like, oh, this is really interesting. Or this is even maybe really good. But we also recognize that we have weird, you know, sort of distorted taste because this is our job. And it's just like, you know, we all have the friend who is really, really into music and whether, you know, I'm sure this was you in a previous life to some extent. And they're like, oh man, like I'm really into this band and like, they, they're just like super cool. And they make music that is clearly niche music. Right. And that's fine. But if those people try and convince you that like, man, you know, the best business practice for you as a, I don't know, whatever, as a record shop owner is to, if that even still exists, I don't know what people streaming media, I don't even know is to like go all in on this weird niche sound. Like you'd be like, you're crazy it's the same thing with wine like it's something that appeals to 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 sommeliers and people who work in the wine industry that is that is a terrible basis by which to then determine the direction of your business i mean completely agree i think i think that there is like i think when you taste wine for a living and you're drinking lots of wine you start looking for these funkier characteristics and these things that sort of stand out and i think sherry for that reason is one of those things um i think sherry's really cool um i think it's really interesting but but i do think also as you're saying like for a lot of people it's just not the beverage that really speaks to them because it does have so many flavors that can be seen 
toot people as being kind of weird um, in the same way that I think that like natural wine doesn't have as large of an audience as I think a lot of um, people might think it's going to or will. Um, I like to think about it in sort of terms of like IPA, right? So for me, like traditional IPAs have a very specific audience. They're, it's, it's huge. Like don't get me wrong, massive audience. But the bitterness was off-putting to some people. Here comes like the more rounded, one might say red blend of IPA, the New England IPA, which is just all fruit and, you know, juicy, you know, mellow goodness. And it's much more appealing to a much wider, you know, audience of beer drinkers, which is why every brewery in the country is basically brewing one now. Um, and I, I think that's the same. It's like brewers will still tell you that, you know, their favorite beers are still their kind of traditional West Coast IPAs with those super bitter hops that really like smack you in the face because the flavors are more dynamic. They're they're arguably a little more interesting, right? And you no, no one wants to drink just like big, lush, juicy IPAs all day long. Well, maybe some people do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that – or that they really like these like kind of crisp, pinpoint, zippy pilsners that not everyone wants to drink all day long. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same for sherry for Assam of like, you know, you're you're drinking lots of big red wines pretty often, tasting them. It's what customers tend to enjoy, which is which is cool, right? Like Cabernet is the number one wine in America for a reason. Um, and then followed by red blends, and then followed by Pinot Noir. And most of Pinot Noir that's really popular according to Nielsen data is that more rounded Pinot Noir that you might even say is Syrah-esque. Um so for those for those people working in the industry, like after tasting those kinds of wines to supply for your list, like it becomes really fun to drink sherries. And I think, as you said, it's also cool because like you can get them for really great prices. You can drink really old shit really cheap. But I also agree, like just it's not going to pop off in the way that I think a lot of people keep predicting it will. And I think that it's cool to shed light on it. I think we should talk about sherry because more people should drink it because it's cool. But we shouldn't talk about it like if you're not drinking it, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, or if you don't like the the flavor profile, which is definitely not super approachable. It's it's you know they're 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 very lean often. They're, like I said, they're fortified, so they're higher in alcohol. They're very savory and and salty, and sometimes a little bit bitter. I mean, these are things I like, and that's why I like sherry in a lot of ways, but they're not for everyone. I think the last point I want to make in this general vein, which is similar to the last point, but I think a little different, is there's also, besides the navel-gazing, there's also a little bit of ego involved here where people, sommeliers in particular, in some cases, want to really believe that like they can convince people to like anything. And you see a lot of the people who are pushing sherry are people who are invested in the idea that like they're brand, I guess, if you want to put it that way, is strong enough that they can convince anyone that they like anything. And I'm not meaning that these people are buying crap wine and passing it off as good wine. It's more like they can be, they can take a trip to the Sherry Triangle and become, you know, enamored with it and come back to their place in the U.S. and be like, I am now going to create an entire tasting menu devoted to Sherry. And it's like, good luck. No one's going to fucking care. No one's going to enjoy it. <laughs> Go like, I don't know who the I, you find me the sommelier who can do that. I mean that like you you doesn't matter your master psalm your your big name. The reality is like most people who drink in you know, the vast majority of people who drink wine in this country do not want you to challenge them. There was a restaurant in Seattle that that was that opened that was a, a Spanish restaurant um, called Aragona and it was their focus was sherry and this was a few years ago so maybe they predated some of this and they had 
now what are now two master sommeliers running the wine program. They were not both master sommeliers at the time. And those guys are both friends of mine. They did an awesome job. They put together a great program. And that restaurant failed, like, right away. And not because of them. I mean, there were a lot of other issues. There's a question as to whether you should open, like, a 300-seat rustic Spanish restaurant in downtown Seattle. I think the answer is pretty conclusively no. But that's neither here nor there. But the point is, like, they were convinced and and totally honestly that they were going to make Sherry a thing in Seattle. And the, and the reality is, like, nope, they're not going to. They didn't. Now, if they'd had a 50-seat restaurant, maybe that would have been a thing. But you're just not going to bring Sherry to the masses because the masses don't want Sherry. And and I, unfortunate for Sherry and, and for the producers. And to some extent, there's a that that's a big change, right? Sherry, like we said, used to be much more dominant um, in the wine scene. But a lot of it too is like you got to remember our history here for a second. Like fortified wines used to be much bigger because they were the things that you could actually safely ship around the world. Because they were fortified, they lasted a hell of a lot longer than your average table wine. Well, now between wine production in the U.S. and other places ramping up and refrigerated shipping containers, I don't have to worry about whether my 12% alcohol white wine from you know northern Italy is going to survive the transatlantic voyage. I know it will. So I don't need to drink fortified wine to get something with that same flavor profile. I can drink something that's a little more clearly wine-like and isn't fortified. And that's generally what I'd prefer, frankly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think those are all facts that we forget. And I think we do like to, you know, as Americans romanticize these sort of things that were big long ago and believe that like the only reason is because were, I don't know, like we've lost them or something, you know what I mean? And so therefore we should revisit. But I think your point about the historical significance of the fact that the reason they were big a long time ago was because of shipping and things like that is really valid um, and something that I, I actually hadn't thought of at all. So thank you, Zach, for that really amazing lesson. I'm glad I can come in handy yeah. occasionally. Um, and, and yeah, I, I do think that like, look, I, you, people should give Sherry a try. There are some times when I've had some really amazing ones. But also, like, let's not get all upset when it doesn't become the next big thing. Um, you know, no offense to those that really love it. But, like, let's understand that, like, it's just it's, – it's not going to happen, guys. It's not going to happen. Okay. Adam, I'm going to leave you with a little teaser for a future podcast episode, I think, which is my contention is there is no next big thing in wine anymore. There are no – nothing will ever – topple at this point in the my imagine in our lifetime cabernet sauvignon chardonnay pinot noir sauvignon blanc barring catastrophic climate change in which case you know we got bigger problems those grapes and that those wine styles are going to dominate the american wine industry for the foreseeable future now they might change a little bit in where their most popular regions are they may change a little bit in in terms of style but we are not going to be doing this podcast in 20 years talking about like the breakthrough of some grape you and I had not heard of at this point, or even a grape you and I had I heard of at this point. I but our listeners had. Look, I mean, this is a larger podcast to talk about, but it's a good way for us to wrap up. Like the 1855 classification happened for Bordeaux. We kind of look back to that and say like, well, that must've been when Bordeaux really like became, no, Bordeaux was huge before that. It's still huge. Even like Bordeaux is even like, oh my God, we're not cool anymore among Psalms in a few select cities. In most places I go, lots of people are still selling lots of Bordeaux. You talk to, to actually the CIVB and like they had the best uh, numbers. They're back to like their their 90s boom numbers this year, right? So like Bordeaux is still selling a lot. Napa is still yeah. selling a lot. I think you're completely right. 
it's cool to champion these newer regions that are emerging and they're really great. And I, I think that just them getting on the radar in America is going to help, you know, help the economics of certain countries. But yeah, the idea that like Zeno Mavro were, will ever take Barolo for collectability is, is probably never going to happen. As much as I love Zeno Mavro, you know, the idea that, uh, the Barolo will ultimately overtake, over, overtake Burgundy is probably never going to happen. And the yeah. idea that, that Sherry will become this behemoth that like, everyone is now collecting and drinking is never going to happen. And the reality is like, we don't need it to, you know, the great thing about being a wine drinker now is that we have all these choices, right? And if you want to drink Barolo, you can do that. And if you want to drink something that's like Barolo and a little more affordable, then, you know, you can drink Zinomavro or Norello Mascalese or whatever else you want. And if you, and if you want to drink sherry, there will still always be some sherry out there. And even if, you know, some of these bodegas close and some of the production dwindles, like, yeah, there's some sadness and loss of history there, but like, that's the reality of our world. Like I, I sherry is just, is a, it's hard for me to shed a tear for it. Um, because like for one, sherry had its run and it was a great run for it at, at various times. And it sucks for the people who are there now that maybe they're working in a declining industry, but like, you know, newspapers had their run and then you know now we all read our news online like advisor.com you know <laughs> and uh you know radio had it maybe still has its day to some extent but like hey we listen to podcasts hopefully uh um, you know these things these things change and cherry had its time and it's still out there and you can still find it and it's still pretty affordable and sometimes really delicious and sometimes not but like to think that it's some great tragedy of the modern wine world that like not everyone loves sherry it's just bullshit man it's it's either navel gazy or it's arrogance or it's just it's a misunderstanding of like what people want out of wine when they drink it which is mostly like deliciousness and sherry can deliver that in the right context but like sherry's thing has never been out and out deliciousness it's always been you know contrast to the food of the region or compliment complementing the food of the region and it does that really well but you know how often do you sit down at home and eat, you know, white anchovies or, you know, just a nice, you know, some thinly sliced hey, empirical hey, ham? Probably not. That, well, I mean, me too, but I don't just, that's not my like, no, go-to yeah, food right. at home. No, it's not. So, so like Sherry has its place and it can even be beyond, you know, Spanish food, but, but it not, you know, it kind of has to stay in its place. I think, I think everyone who's tried to break it out of it, as we talked about at the beginning, they failed and they will continue to fail because that's what Sherry is. It's a niche beverage and that's cool. We like niches, you know, that that keeps us interested, but but it doesn't have to be more than that and it won't be more than that. I think that's a great place to leave it here, Zach. I think we, we could have applied this close to almost any sort of wine, current wine fad. Um, and I think it's just important to remember that, yeah, I mean, fads are fads and let's not all, we maybe should also get all upset about it, you know, let's not take it all too seriously. So uh, um, it's like you said, man. It's just fermented grape juice, dude. It's just alcohol. It is. It's okay. At the end of the day, we just we just like it because first of all, hopefully it tastes good and it's well made. But then, like we also like the effects. It makes us more social. You know, it, it hopefully helps ease a little bit of tension. Uh, and as long as we don't abuse it, which we shouldn't, we should always drink responsibly. It's a it's a it's a great beverage that adds a lot of uh, you know amazing things to life. So yeah, yeah. with that note. Dude, also amazing conversation to listeners. Thank you so much again for for checking us out. Please, uh, you know, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And Zach, I will see you again for another great conversation next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.